Well, my name is James, and uh, my wife and I have been members here for seven years. Uh, and I have the pleasure this morning of bringing you the word in worship uh, to give Mark Smith, our lead pastor here, a much-needed break through the month of January. So I have the good pleasure of continuing our sermon series throughout the book of Luke that we've been doing. I tried to count back. It's been perhaps a year. We've been in Luke for quite some time, and we're in Luke 11. We have a ways to go, um, but it's, it's a wonderful thing that we do here as a church to move through books slowly uh, and carefully in, in a way that causes us to confront every text, both the easy ones and the more difficult ones. And uh, I have uh, the pleasure today of continuing in a, in a series of more difficult ones uh, where we look through what it means to be confronted with the danger of bad religion. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Here from Luke 11. This is Luke 11, 37 through 12, 3. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you were like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And then Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed." You, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime... When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on housetops. Well, praise God for his word. You may be seated. I'd like to start our time here with a quote from John Piper. If you think God is incapable of making you happy forever, then you don't know God. This passage gets to the heart of the question, what does the love of God look like in the context of practicing his religion? And the second question, is there such a thing then as bad religion? And are we in danger here in this room of practicing it? And this is a word, friends, for us. This is a very pastoral word, and I think we need to hear it as such. It is so easy in a passage like this to think of the Pharisee and think of the lawyer and look at them only as these external evils that, oh, that's not me, and that's, that's not, or even maybe look at someone else in your life, that's, that's them. I have been uh, one who's committed this sin multiple times in my life, and this is an important thing for us to honestly assess here in our own lives and in this room as we as a gathered body practice what I pray and what we pray is good religion, not bad religion. So as we dig into then what this means to practice bad religion and the dangers of it, Jesus' exchange here explains the relationship between 
being a holy people and being a sent people, which helps give us insight on how we can behave then as a gathered people. Jesus is showing us what the Pharisees and the lawyers did wrong in order to help us see what to do right. So we can take this admonishment and turn it into an encouragement. Our job is not to sit down in in the shallows or the depths of sin and wallow in it. Our job is to be lifted up from it by the encouragement of our one true teacher, Jesus, and be encouraged on what it looks like to live a life close and dedicated to him. Those who are in love with religion then, to put it simply, look to their rituals to provide them with security and happiness, and then those rituals become sin. Those who are in love with God look to God to provide them with their security and happiness, and any ritual that grows out of that love is obedience. It's a very important distinction here that we're going to draw out in our time together. And this begs the extremely important question here today on the West Seattle, why do we go to church on a Sunday? Why do we go to this church on this Sunday? So here's what your answer should be, if I might offer my interpretation, and I want you to test this with your understanding of the Scripture and and what you feel convicted in, in orthodoxy. We go to church to see and be reminded of and be encouraged by Jesus, by gathering as his body in an act of both obedience and worship that comes from a deep love for and commitment to our Father, God. The proper placement of our love is crucially important. I'm going to read you a part of Revelation here where Jesus tells the early church, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This all sounds good, right? If Jesus told us this, we'd probably be beaming. This is the moment where you think, okay, I'm going to stop here, and Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But he continues, but I have this against you. Church, what does Jesus have against this early church in Asia Minor here in the first century? That you have abandoned the love you had at first. I'm going to read that again that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Just to expound on that a little bit, the idea of removing a lampstand from its place is that we, as a reflection of the glory of our holy God, are called as his church to be lampstands, which light bulbs, if you want to think of it in a modern context, and a light bulb is not to be hidden under something, it is to be displayed and provide light to a world living in darkness. So we are called to be a lampstand, and this passage isn't denying that a dying church cannot also act as a lampstand. But the danger is that a dying church will not remain a lampstand forever, that our Father in his goodness and wisdom will encourage and correct and make sure that his name is held as holy and that he will take resources from one group and give them to another who is faithful in order to proclaim the glory of his majesty and ensure that his word continues to be proclaimed and that his people continue to love him and be encouraged and live a holy and set-apart life. So that's, that's a lot. So let's dig into it. Jeff Hundley preached on the first Sunday of this year uh, with, with the idea that we can reject God by living an amoral life, but we can also reject God by living a moral life. And we saw this earlier in Luke, as I mentioned, kind of a difficult series of passages we've been working through. Uh, difficult, but very fruitful, I think. Last week, Stephen, Stephen uh, brought us another passage in Luke that confronted Jesus' condemnation of religious apathy. And then this week, Jesus puts a finer point on these things and ties it, what I believe is very clearly, into the piece, the missing piece, the linchpin, if you will, that causes all of these things to either go well or go awry, to go from what could be bad religion or into good religion. And friends, I don't think the timing of us going through these difficult passages in Luke is any coincidence. This was set in motion by a planning team here at the Hollows years ago, that we'd go through these passages years ago, a year ago, that we'd go through these passages here at this time. And now we're also confronting the question, what does it mean to be a gathered people here at the hollows? This is all part of the Lord's providence and guiding us and instructing us and teaching us as individuals to live out a called life. 
So let's dig into the text then. Verse 38, what triggered this exchange? What triggered this zealous and what seems to be uh, angry response from Jesus? I'll read through a few different commentaries here uh, because there are wiser minds than mine that have been put into understanding this text in that way. So I'll read you a few quotes here. This first one is from John Gills, from Gills' Exposition of the Entire Bible. Filled with astonishment and indignation that he, being Jesus, had not first washed before dinner, especially since he had been in a crowd of people, Luke eleven twenty nine, for the Pharisees not only washed their hands by immersing them up to the elbow before eating, but when they had been at the market or among any large number of people or had reason to think or feared that they had touched any unclean person or thing, they, being the Pharisees, immersed themselves in water. They took a bath. They were baptized. Heinrich August Wilhelm Meyer, in his commentary on the New Testament, says this, Jesus had just come out of the crowd. Nay, he had just expelled a demon there is something that's unclean, it would be that, would it not be? Hence, they, being the Pharisees, expected that he, Jesus, would first cleanse himself by a bath before the morning meal. And finally here, I want to read here from the Cambridge Bible for scholars and colleges. He marveled that he had not first washed, literally bathed. No washing was necessary to eat a few dates or figs. At the chief meal of the day, where all dipped their hands into a common dish, it was a matter of cleanliness. We all do this, don't we? We wash our hands before a meal. But the duty of cleanliness had been turned by the oral law into a rigorous set of cumbersome and needless things, each performed with certain elaborate methods and gesticulations. You see this also in Mark 7, 2 through 3. These things had nothing to do with religion or even with the Levitical law, but only with Pharisaic tradition and the oral law. In the Sulchen Aruch, a book of Jewish ritual, we see no less than 26 prayers are given with which their washings are accompanied. But all of this was not only devoid of divine sanction, but it becomes superstitious, tyrannous, and futile. The Pharisee marveled because he, in his piety, tried to enforce the oral law on the people even as more sacred than the written law. The subject of absolutions was one which caused several of these disputes with Christ. And we see this here in this passage. I love this here. The rabbi, and I'm going to butcher this name, a certain rabbi, I'll just say, would have preferred to die of thirst rather than neglect his absolutions. And the Talmud thought that a demon sat on unwashed hands. Our Lord astonished the conventionalism, conventionalism of these religious teachers and their followers by shewing that what truly defiles a man is that which cometh from within the heart. So that's the context that we're here in this passage today. This is what Jesus is reacting to. Unwashed hands, a religious practice that has gone away from its true love. And we see that here in a minute. But before we do, let's understand the players in the story, the Pharisees and the lawyers. What made a Pharisee a Pharisee was their strict adherence to a code of biblical laws, like the Levitical law, and as we see here, a code of extra-biblical laws in order to display Israel's holiness. So it's important to understand, and I know we've learned this detail here before, but just to make sure we're all on the same page here, Israel was not in a good place during this time. They were subject to Roman rule. The prophets had been silent for hundreds of years. It seemed like the face of God had turned away from them. And this model was reflected elsewhere in the Old Testament, where there were periods of silence that Israel endured, in large part as punishment for them turning away from the instruction and love of God. So the Pharisees had a great idea. Traditionally, they believed, you know what? We can bring back God's favor by acting as a holy people. Well, sounds good on paper, right? But what they were trying to do was earn God's favor by putting him in their debt, by behaving in a way that made God, they would think, say, you truly are a good people. I'm going to give you my favor. So that's the background for the Pharisees. And that just built upon itself more and more as they were trying to bring the Lord's presence into their life and into the life of Israel to set them free. And ultimately, of course, this is how Jesus stepped on the stage as the the king that they were not looking for. They were looking for a political ruler to break the Roman oppression, not the king of the universe coming uh, gentle and lowly to give up his life um, in humility for us. 
And then there's the lawyers. The lawyers are a subgroup of the Pharisees, someone who was most likely, I suppose, but not necessarily one who was a member, who devoted himself to a deep and devout study of the law and scripture, which they perverted to align with their own interpretations and maintain with their own power. So if you want to think about it, the Pharisees have this kind of broader desire to bring in God's presence by uh, being holy. And then the lawyers were kind of their, their A-team that dug in and said, okay, well, we've studied the law. Here are the ways that we can take what's written, and here are the ways we can add to what's written to essentially what we see in this passage, ultimately, heap on these burdens, not that they would say these words, but as Jesus would describe it, heap on these burdens that are too great to bear. So ultimately, we see this group of people desires through behavior modification to demonstrate behavioral excellence in order to earn back God's attention and in turn, his favor. His favor. And this is where they make the wrong turn. So where do we see the Pharisees' misplaced affections in this text? This isn't just me speaking. This is Jesus diagnosing where their love isn't. And we see this in verses 40 through 42. So in 40 and 41, Jesus says, You fools, did did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. We also see this in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus then, after diagnosing where their love is not, is properly diagnosing where their love is in verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Their love wasn't for their Father in heaven. Their love was for their peer on the street or their subject in the street. As the rulers of the time, that's where their tanks were filled. Not by their father, but by their people. So Jesus, in showing us what the Pharisees and lawyers did wrong in order to help us, is doing this rather, in order to help us see what to do right and to protect us ultimately as his people from practicing this bad religion. So how are we to understand then the role of the people of God, especially in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, which occurred after this text? In summary, we are a holy people, we are a sent people, and we're a gathered people. So a holy people, a sent people, and a gathered people. And let's go through those three things here together. A holy people. What does it mean to be holy? And I don't mean holier than thou, as a cultural turn of phrase might be, might be said. I mean how God defines holy, how humans understand holy defined in the context of our Father. By nature, God is holy, and by nature, we are not. We are fallen. We are sinners. We bring nothing to the table in our own righteousness. We see in Isaiah 6.3, The seraphim are around the throne of God in the presence of Isaiah singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is one of the most famous songs in all of Scripture, and it is actually the only time that we see any attribute of God spoken of in this way, where it's three times, holy, holy, holy. And we need to understand the original language that this is written in. That's a really big deal. So in Hebrew, if you're going to add uh, kind of an, an extra level of uh, importance or of, or of magnitude or whatever it might be, you'd repeat the word. And so, uh, you know, you'd say, uh, truly, truly, I say to you is what Jesus said, which the word truly is actually amen. You know, we say amen at the end of a prayer, which essentially means it is true. I agree. As the people, we say this prayer is true and we offer it to our Lord. So when Jesus says truly, truly, amen, amen, he's saying, hey, friends, this is this is really true. This isn't just true. This is true, true. So you all need to listen. Uh, a comical uh, version of this um, that I learned from R.C. Sproul here is in, um, in the Old Testament where we see a group of people fell into some tar pits. Uh, and that's a whole other story. But the word actually used there is not tar pits. It's actually pit pits. These people fell into some pit pits, some very pity pits. So the idea that we're describing these things that are, that are of a greater magnitude in some way. And so the, the English translation uses the word tar, because well, that would be terrible. That's a very pity pit if you fell into a tar pit. So when we see the angels singing, holy, 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 and we understand this is the only time in Scripture something like this is written about our Lord, 
we need to pay attention to what this means. And I think Isaiah understands this well. In Isaiah 6, what happens when he finds himself suddenly in the throne room of heaven as a prophet? A prophet, mind you. You know, not someone who was set apart because of his relationship with the Lord and the Lord's relationship with him. He sees the angels flying around singing, holy, holy, holy. He sees the throne. And what does he do? Does he stand there and say, oh yeah, I made it. I'm here with you, Father. This is great. You must love me. No, absolutely not. Isaiah is not flippant. Isaiah is not uh, lighthearted. Isaiah understands what it means to be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. And you know what he does? He falls on his face and he says, Woe to me, I am undone. I am undone. When's the last time we thought about our Father and said, Woe to me, a sinner, I am undone without the love of Christ? This is Isaiah's response, and this, I believe, is a start to understanding the definition of holy. But just to start, friends, this is not the whole definition of how we are to understand what it means to be holy, but I think it puts our definition in its proper and awesome perspective. R.C. Sproul explains it this way, if there ever was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah ben Amoz. He was a whole man, a together type of fellow. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. And then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able, perhaps, to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. God commanded us to be holy from the start. In Leviticus 19.12, he said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1.13-16, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed by the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also will be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, here it is, that passage we just read, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, friends, a holy, holy, holy God, who is also not merciful and provided a way for us to be with him, would not be good news for us as woeful, consistent sinners, would it? We would have no ability to be in his presence. We would have no, no ability to experience the love of the Father. But God made a way in the passage in Isaiah for Isaiah to be in his presence because God wanted a relationship with this unholy individual. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah speaking, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then after that, we hear the mouth of the Lord open up and say, who will go forth? Is there anybody? And Isaiah says, me, me, pick, pick me. I'm ready. That's not the, the topic of the sermon, but we see that purification was uh, the way in which God then was able to move into a deeper relationship with this individual who was to be sent. And now while the coal in Isaiah was a one-time purification, friends, we live on the other side of the cross. And the death and resurrection of Jesus, our King, is an all-time purification that allows us to live our holy lives described in Peter. It's only because the power of sin has been conquered by Jesus that we have the ability to fight sin and even live holy lives, even think about living holy lives. This is the beauty of the new covenant. And this is why Jesus had such a strong, uh, this, this, I say this singularly, this is one of the reasons I believe uh, Jesus had such a strong reaction to the Pharisees watching and their religious practices, trying to earn, put God in their debt for their morality. If there's anything in this world that should stir our affections and humble us toward a love of God, it's an understanding of what it means to be called holy by God in Christ 
given what has been revealed to us about the nature of God's holiness. The Pharisees and lawyers were on to something. God doesn't allow those who aren't holy in his presence. But the Pharisees conflated the practice of religious morality with holiness. This kind of behavior is just an attempt, like I've said a few times now, to manipulate God. I did something good for you, God, so now you owe me something good. This is starkly different from, God, you did something good for me, so now I adore you and seek to serve you. And that brings us into our second point. We're a sent people. And by sent, I don't mean exclusively externally evangelistic, although that is part of what's included in the definition. What I'm referring to is someone who's being sent on mission. And our mission is multifaceted and directly shaped by the degree to which we see and love Christ as we live in this fallen world, as fallen people. Three points, I believe, we can see what it means to be on mission in this way, and it's to participate in his body, to faithfully serve and, and work and the work that's been set before us, and to seek and save the lost. There are many different dimensions here. Um, but the linchpin, again, as I want to remind us here, this work can only be done if our affections are in the right place. And we see this in verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So this command isn't new. And uh, our friend and brother Chase here read this for us earlier from Micah 6. So Micah 6, 6, 8 reads, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is powerful, these words in Micah. Well, what does it mean for us to understand these different things, to neglect justice and the love of God? And this is what Jesus is referring to. He's hearkening back to Micah 6. Neglecting justice is a horizontal person-to-person -person type of relationship. Neglecting a love for God is a vertical, if you will, person-to-God kind of relationship. And this parallel is really powerful because it ties into the Ten Commandments where we see the first four cover our relationship with God and the rest of the six cover our relationship with people. So roll with me here as we move through a summary parallel here in the book of, I think it's Matthew. Yes, Matthew 19 and the parable of the rich young ruler. So just listen to these words. I know we've heard this story many times, but I pray that it would have a fresh understanding in the context that we're going through it here today. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus said to him, well, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear fault witness, honor your father and mother, and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, well, All of these I have kept, which is ridiculous. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell your possessions, and here it is, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the other important part, come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. The young man had an affection problem, not a morality problem. Well, I should say primarily he did have a morality problem, but his problem was first affections, not morality. It's not that he was rich necessarily. It was that he loved his wealth and in doing so neglected a love for God that kept him from being able to love and serve others. See, these are all connected. They are inextricably linked. And what's really important here, I, I want you, I pray to see what, what I see in the text and that it's not just my, my craziness or, or my going off the rails, that this is what Jesus intended us to see in here. So look here at the passage and 
at the way, it's a bizarre way that Jesus guides the rich young ruler through this. If you read this out of context, you could say many things. You could say, is God saying he's, or is Jesus saying he's not good? Is Jesus saying he's not God? Why does he respond in this way? Why doesn't he just come out first and say, well, love me? Why does he focus the man on just six of the commandments and not the four that have to do with God? Well, Jesus, as a master communicator and one who knows the heart of every person to whom he's communicating with, draws the man through a journey that ultimately reveals his motivations and uproots the sin in his life, the core sin in his life. So let's look at that together. What's really important to note is how, again, Jesus only focuses on the horizontal relationship, those commandments, those six commandments that talk about the man's relationship with other people in this created world. This rhetorical strategy by Jesus ultimately reveals what's going on in the man's life and that his misplaced love has not only caused him to break the first four commandments, but in breaking those first four, he's unable to keep the final six, or the other six, I should say. And this all ties back to his misplaced love. The power of our sentness is only possible then because of our holiness. Moral self-righteousness is really a deep love of self. This is why self-righteous people are often the worst servants. A love of self consumes an individual's capacity to serve others. Let me say that one more time. A love of self consumes an individual's capacity to serve others. As a tangent, this again, there is, there is both a good path in singleness and in marriage, but this is why God gave us the institution of marriage as a covenant love, because it causes people to get rid of the love of themselves should they be pursuing that marriage in a faithful and godly way. And it, it, that institution, that covenant, instructs people on how to get rid of the love of self. Why? So you can serve others. And if we just if we could take a look at many passages where Jesus shows us what that looks like and he models that for us, but with properly ordered loves, we'll be able to set out on our mission to then properly love others. John 13, 35 talks about the power of our ambassadorship of God. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I really, it's important that we all hear these things as connected pieces. Do not hear these as individual things, because this is where so many bodies and people go astray, where they focus on one aspect of Jesus' teaching and make it everything. We're going to get to that here in a little bit, but I just want to say that here because it's very easy. A lot of these texts I'm reading have been conflated by a very um, uh, modern and theologically loose group of Christians to just focus Jesus' mission on one specific thing, and that is not what I'm advocating at all. I'm advocating for us to look at Scripture and how it connects to the rest of Scripture and understand then what it means to be a holy, a gathered, and a sent people. So as we move then to a gathered people, the final piece here, and I'm running up on a little time, so I'm going to try to move quickly, but... Bear with me here. In this passage, after the exchange that Jesus had with the Jewish religious leaders, we read that Jesus left the leaders. With so many thousands of people gathered together, they were trampling over one another. So these are people who heard Jesus' teaching. They were uh, inspired. They were in love. They wanted more. And so they were trampling over themselves to be with him. People were captivated with the words of Jesus, so much so that they sought him and crowded him like he was a Hollywood star in an L.A. grocery store. We don't have the opportunity to physically press around Jesus in these crowds in that way, but God has made a way for us. And church, uh, we're told that this is a powerful way, that it's not a, a less worthy substitute, but that it is actually uh, a beautiful thing that we get to participate in his body as his bride. And we see this many different places. Um, one of these places is where we see Jesus tell us, where two are there and gathered in my name, uh, that's a typo. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Our Lord and Savior is here with us today. You in your home, if you're gathered with another believer, the Lord is with you there that day. This is astounding. Do you hear how astounding this is? Hold what I just said with the context of Isaiah's experience in the throne room just a few minutes ago where he fell on his face and was undone. Every fiber of his being came apart because he was in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. God is affirming that he has moved from a model of a holy place. Think of this, the Old Testament, Ark of the Covenant, Holy of Holies. A high priest has to prepare all year to enter into the presence of God 
only one time. And if he didn't do things right, he was dead. He was confronted with the holiness of God as an unholy creature, and that caused that high priest to become undone in such a way that it took his creaturely life. We move from that to this new model, this new covenant. Christ is our high priest, and we are one with him. The exclusive access to the holy of holies from the high priest is what I'm referring to specifically, is gone. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom. This happened when Jesus paid it all on the cross. He became our holiness, and he gave us that holiness. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We do not earn it today, and we do not deserve it today, but it has been granted to us, and this teaches us something beautiful about the love and the Father. And so that's why Jesus can confidently look at us, if you will, write to us and say, when two or more of us are gathered in my name, there I am also. No high priest, no substitution of a lamb, no atonement in those uh, Old Testament ways. Those were types that pointed to Jesus, the ultimate substitution, the ultimate atonement, the Lamb of God. This is why we refer to it in Revelation and all throughout Scripture as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're celebrating the marriage that unites us into a relationship with the Father because of the Lamb. It's not just the marriage supper. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate substitution, the one who provides us a path to holiness. This is really important for us to understand. So listen to these words here. It is possible for this building to be the most holy place on the block. And it is possible for your homes to be the most holy places on the block. It is also possible for this place to be the most ordinary, dark, and powerless place on the block. The question is, what is the spiritual health of the gathered people? What do they love? Even more specifically, whom do we love? Are our affections ordered rightly? If we are the body of Christ, then if we love him, we should desire to be around him. And this is the whole point. We're a gathered people. And by our closest way that we can be around him is by being with each other in this life. So gathering is important. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints. And this in and of itself is a participation in the mercy of God as Jesus is the embodiment of the mercy of God. And there's also wisdom throughout the pages of Scripture and the epistles about gathering. Why do these encouragements exist? We need to be attentive to them while being wise so that it keeps us from wandering then into bad religion, so that it keeps us from wandering into a disordered affection. So gathering can be helpful practically in two ways, gathering as guard and gathering as worship. We see in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we see here in Hebrews 10, 24 through 26, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the Lord's day, just this context, the return of Christ and glory and conquering sin and death once and for all. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. There no longer remains a coal taken from the altar, pressed upon our lips to allow us to be in the presence of our Father without being undone. That's a powerful statement. And gathering is one of those things that allows us to protect ourselves by the mercy of Jesus and the power of the Spirit against wandering those directions. It's very pragmatic. And we also gather as an act of worship. We see here in Acts 2, 42 through 47, this beautiful and nuanced picture of the gatherings of the early church um, when the Spirit came upon them and launched the uh, revolution, if you will, and the revelation of Jesus and what it means to live as his embodied people. And so here, verse 42 through 47 in Acts, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, and as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look here, or listen here, I suppose, at the connection between verses 42 and 43 here. Verses 42, verse 42, they devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship and meals and prayer. Bit of a paraphrase. And verse 43, awe came upon every soul. That word awe in the Greek is transliterated phobos. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Phobia is where we get that English word. This means fear. So you could also say fear came upon every soul. Now, this is not the exact same word used in the phrase fear of the Lord, but it is a very related phrase. It's the same root word is in there, or there's the same yeah, root word. There's just another prefix in front of it. And I believe it's related in a very important way. This fear is ultimately us tied back to being a holy people. When we're in the presence of God, we should have a healthy fear of our Father, a healthy fear of our Father. Not a fear in a phobia sense, as our uh, culture defines that word, as, our, as, as we understand that word to mean rightly today. But remember Isaiah's reaction. He fell down, understanding he was in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. But then he looked up at the Father after he was cleansed and brought into right relationship with him to be able to have a conversation with God about what it means to be sent to the people of Israel. Those two things have to live in tension in our minds, friends, as we think about what it means to be a gathered people in the presence of God, where two or more are gathered in his name. There, the presence of our Father is also. The early church lived in fear because they saw the miracles. They saw the power of God. They weren't just having a social hour with a nice pizza or a nice casserole and a glass of wine. They were experiencing the power of God on the earth as it was intended. They were experiencing healing. They were experiencing Uh, power of demons being cast out. They were experiencing the love of Christ. And that led them to be, what? Fearful, but properly fearful. So that's, again, the importance of what it means to be a gathered people. And that fear ultimately should lead to our worship. Shouldn't lead us to hide or to cower. It will lead some to hide and to cower. And I say rightfully so, because Who can stand in the presence of God unless they're made holy? No one can. We read in the pages of Scripture that on those final days, on the Lord's day, that people will seek to be hidden in the clefts of a rock. They will will hide in caves. They'll try to get as far away from the outside as possible, try to go down into the earth, if you will, for safety, because the Lord has come. And those who are not in right standing with the Lord, those who are not holy, made holy in the presence of the Lord, will be undone. So where else can we go? but away. And ultimately, friends, we know that there is no way to get away. Our our God, our Lord, is present everywhere. It's a bit of a tangent, but here as we conclude, um, I want to read this quote from John Stone Street at the Colson Center that I think sets uh, up this little section well. Techniques, styles, church movements come and go, but those whom Christ saves, he sustains. I'm going to read that again. Techniques, styles, church movements come and go, but those whom Christ saves, he sustains. What a beautiful truth. Amen? So that begs the question again, why do we gather on a Sunday? Why do we gather on a Wednesday night? Why do we gather on a Monday morning for a prayer meeting or or a coffee catch-up with a brother or a sister in Christ? Why do we set apart the Lord's day as Sunday when every day is the Lord's? Why do we call it holy? Why do we do these things? Why are we convicted to live life differently, holy, set apart from the world, might I add, the watching world around us? We don't live in a vacuum, friends. We know this, especially in this city and especially in this neighborhood. Our coworkers, our friends who don't know the Lord, our family who don't know the Lord, our neighbors, they all look at our behavior and they discern and they wonder and they decide. And our behavior has, by God's grace, the ability to influence their discernment and their wonder and their decision on why we live the way we live and 
whether it is savory or whether it is putrid. And I might add to that, we read in 2 Corinthians that for those moving from death to death, our lives is a fragrance of death. And for those moving from life to life, our lives are a fragrance of life. So we shouldn't seek to be living in the fear of man in a way that makes us think, oh, if people don't like what we do, then we must be doing something wrong. Absolutely not. The Lord is working in his divine sovereignty to bring people into life. And we are told that living as life, living as light, will draw those people further into life by his grace. And we are also told the hard but necessary truth that those whom the Lord has not drawn into salvation, that our actions will be not as salt to cure instead, but as salt to sting. Do you understand? And that's okay. We're told in Scripture that that is by design. So why do we come to church on a Sunday? Why are we a part of Christ's beautiful bride? Friends, we must reject this all-too-common, narrow-minded focus that creeps its way into how we worship and love God. And often this fallacy is born out of good intentions, but misplaced affections. So pray, ask the Lord, beg the Lord to set your affections right. I have been begging the Lord as I've been preparing this over the last week or so to set my affections right. And it's an important prayer to ask. And it's not the wrong prayer to ask. We see these misplaced affections specifically in, in uh, the world of Christianity in different ways. People show up on a Sunday or they join a church and they say, I'm just here for justice, or I'm just here for mercy, or I'm just here for moral excellence. I'm just here for charismatic experiences. I'm here for captivating teaching. I'm here for quality music. I'm here for the kids program. These things aren't bad, but they are not ultimate. These are not the reasons that we are called to participate in the bride of Christ. They are things we should seek, but we should seek first the kingdom of God out of a properly ordered love for him. Jesus' thinking around these things is much more rich and honestly much more freeing and much more wise because there is no perfect human institution. Let me say that more clearly. There is no perfect institution run by humans, governed by humans. The church as it's given to us is an institution of God, but he has given us to govern it. And there, because of that reality, will be aspects of, uh, of the nature of those institutions that are fallen. So we'll always fail in our thinking if we try to shoehorn God's wisdom into man's fallen and narrow perspectives and objectives. This is why so many ideological stream extremists can take uh, these different opposite positions of Jesus or certain words of our Trinitarian God and use them as a banner for their cause and successfully so in their perspective. This has been the case in human history for thousands of years and we see it both on the pages of Scripture and in the paragraphs of our newspapers today. Jesus' words are astoundingly wise because they don't conform to this age, which means he seems, important word here, seems, to say things at one point that contradicts what he says at another point and this is because his words don't conform to an often uh, common but also fallen either-or way of thinking, but instead illuminate the reality of the heart of and root out our hypocrisy, because God's wisdom is so above our wisdom. This is why Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is why the author of Hebrews writes, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, the joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in Jeremiah 17.10, why Jeremiah writes, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The truth of his words exists in understanding how the tension of a sometimes seemingly contradictory statement is actually a beautiful paradox. Specifically in this passage, to bring it all back to the teaching text, it would be easy to take the words of Jesus and use them to bash organized religion and the church people, and the four walls of the church, as so many people have done. And they might say, 
aren't we just here to love Jesus? Aren't we just here to love Jesus? Whatever love means in their minds. And so many have done this. And when they've done this, they end up flying the American flag or the pride flag higher than the cross on the steeple of their building. God knows our intentions. And this teaching text concludes with a sober yet pragmatic warning in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. So listen to me, uh, or listen with me here as I read them. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Those are Jesus' words in that same text. And he says that in the context of, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, which is what? Their hypocrisy. Because their actions were not born out of a rightly ordered affection. Our job is not to fool anybody. My crass example, or I shouldn't say crass, my um, harsh example before of, of flying two different flags on a church building Um, anyone can be subject to that kind of broken theology regardless of what kind of flag they fly. Not flying a flag doesn't also make you in right standing with our Father. So don't try to fool anyone. Our Lord knows. Our motives will be laid bare and we will be undone in that sense either in this life or bowed in front of our Lord Jesus Christ on the final day. And our call within that context is to check the order of our affections and pray that God would increase while we decrease, and joyfully so. We should pray that our love for him would grow, and in doing so, that he would grant us a clear picture on how to be obedient to his call to be a holy people, a sent people, and a gathered people. And whether that be In this context, or whether that be in a different context, in a different city, different neighborhood, different country, that he would give us wisdom nonetheless, because we are a part of Christ's bride, and Christ's bride is universal in that sense. Amen? Only with properly ordered affections can we be obedient to God and find our joy in him. And with this, we'll be able to do his will here on earth as it is in heaven. We will be a holy people and a gathered people and a sent people. We will be a part of Christ's bride, maturing in our love for God and others as we eagerly wait the groom's return. Would you pray with me?